You're not the boss of me. (laughs) Have you ever heard that one before? I'll tell you something, friends. These were like the third words that came out of my kids' mouths when they were born, babies. You know, I think the first one was mommy, and then dada, and then you're not the boss of me. If you haven't figured it out already, uh, we as human beings are an inherently rebellious bunch. We like to be the masters of our own universe. And this morning, we're going to look at a teaching from Jesus where he addresses the original sin that plagues us all, and that's the sin of pride. And what is pride? Pride is the illusion that we are what matter most. Pride is the illusion that we are little gods and the whole world revolves around us. But friends, that's exactly what pride is, an illusion. Because the world doesn't revolve around me and the world doesn't revolve around you. Everything in the universe was created to give glory and praise to God, our creator. But you see, the problem with us in our fallen sinful nature and in our pride is we mistakenly buy into this notion that life is all about me and serving my needs and my desires and my pleasures and my will. And so many of us embrace this attitude as we go through life that you're not the boss of me, I'm in charge. And we forget that we are the creation And God is the creator. He's the boss. He's in control. And God made us to know him, to love him, to have a relationship with him, a life-giving relationship with him. But he's in charge, not us. He's the creator. We are the creation. And when we flip that around and get those things out of order, that's when we find ourselves running into trouble in our lives when we set ourselves up as these little gods, the masters of our own universe, and fail to acknowledge the true authority over our lives, our Heavenly Father who made us, who loves us, who has revealed his will for us, who's shown us the path that leads to life and life to the full. And yet, sadly, so often we choose to rebel against God and his authority. We choose to put our will and desire first rather than his. And as we're going to see this morning, this has really been humanity's problem all along, the reality of our pride. In fact, it's the original sin, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, rebelling against God's will and authority, claiming that they knew better, buying into the lie that they could choose their own destiny. And we've seen this problem of pride play out throughout our journey throughout the Gospel of Luke. In fact, Jesus came into this world specifically to provide the remedy for us for the sin of pride. He came to show us the way that leads to life. He came to remind us that we aren't the boss, that God is, that he's in control, and that all areas of our lives need to be submitted to the Lord. And God could have forced his will upon us, but that's not his nature. So in his love and in his grace, he came as a humble servant He came to speak words of life and show us the way to experience that life to the fullness. And ultimately, he himself laid down his life 
to forgive us of the sin of pride that had wrecked our relationship with our creator God. Jesus came to give us new life, to forgive us and bring us back into a right relationship with our creator God. But the sad reality is throughout history, people have chosen to reject God and his authority. In fact, Jesus was walking on earth, God in human flesh, and even with God in their midst, seeing the miracles, hearing the incredible teaching, even with God in their very midst, people still chose to reject Jesus Christ. You know, have you ever heard people in our day and age say, you know, if God is real, why doesn't he just show himself more clearly? Why doesn't he come? Why doesn't he do miracles? Why doesn't he make himself obvious to us? Friends, even when God did make himself obvious, coming into earth as a man, we still chose to reject him because we want to be the authority and we don't want to submit to anyone else's authority. We're going to see an example of this in our passage this morning as Jesus once again has an encounter with the religious leaders of Israel. All throughout Jesus' ministry, he's he's been proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, and yet the Jewish religious leaders of his day failed to acknowledge his authority. They failed to acknowledge him as the Messiah, the king. And this would ultimately lead to them sending Jesus to his death. We're going to see in our passage this morning this challenge between Jesus and the religious authorities and the question of who is the rightful authority. And this morning, we're going to look at this question for our own lives today. Are we today willing to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ? Are we willing to submit to him as our Lord and Savior? The passage we're going to look at this morning is Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 19. And what we're going to find in our passage this morning is our passage is going to force us to wrestle with three questions. Three significant questions for us even today. The first of these questions is this. Number one, are we willing to acknowledge Christ's authority? Are we willing to acknowledge Christ's authority? We're going to read through our passage this morning section by section as we go through each of these questions. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn now to Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to read it on the screen for us this morning. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and teachers of the law together with the elders came up to him. Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. This is an interesting chapter in the life and ministry of Jesus just a few short days before these very same religious leaders would condemn Jesus to his death. And you could see the the kinds of things that were motivating them in their desire to get rid of Jesus. The question we need to look at this morning as it relates to this first section of Scripture, are we willing to acknowledge Christ's authority? In verse 2, these religious leaders come to Jesus as he's teaching in the temple. And they say to Jesus, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? 
Who gave you this authority? You see, Jesus wasn't part of the established religious or political system. And and so in the eyes of the Jewish religious leaders, Jesus didn't have the credentials or the pedigree to do the things he was doing. Remember, just a few days before this, Jesus had marched into Jerusalem with his followers cheering him, proclaiming him as the Messiah, the coming king. And the Jewish religious leaders said to Jesus, by what authority do you come riding in here as the king of the Jews? And then Jesus goes into the temple the next day and he cleans out the money changers from the temple who had been perverting and corrupting God's holy place. And again, the Jewish religious leaders said to Jesus, by what authority do you think you can do these things? See, that was really the question all along. Who had the authority? Was it the Jewish religious leaders or was it Jesus who came proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. Well, in verses 3 through 4, Jesus replies by asking these religious leaders a question. He says to them, John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it from men? In other words, when John came baptizing, did he get his authority from God or did he just make it up on his own? Where was John's authority? From heaven or from men? Now, this was a brilliant reply by Jesus for a couple of reasons. First, it trapped the Jewish religious leaders into answering their own question. You see, John the Baptist had clearly testified that Jesus was the Messiah. In John 1, 29, when Jesus came up to the Jordan River as John was baptizing, John stopped and he pointed and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John made it very clear who Jesus was. He was the promised Messiah. So if the religious leaders answered that John's authority was from heaven, then Jesus would have simply replied, well, there you go. Why don't you just listen to John? But you see, they didn't want to acknowledge Jesus' authority. And that wasn't an option for them. And the second reason Jesus' question was so great is that it put these Jewish religious leaders in a political bind. Because here's the thing, if they denied that John's authority was from heaven, they risked a rebellion by the people. Because the people, by and large, recognized John as a prophet from God. And so Jesus now has these guys right where he wanted them. Okay? No matter how they answered this question, they were in trouble. And they knew it. So how did they respond to Jesus? Verse 7 tells us, we don't know. They said, we don't know. What cowards. Here we see the true character of the Jewish religious leaders. They weren't interested in the truth. They were simply interested in preserving their own authority. They had failed to shepherd God's people faithfully, and now Jesus exposes them for who they truly were, wolves in sheep's clothing. You see, for the religious leaders of Israel, the truth was far less important to them than maintaining the status quo, holding on to their power. They wanted to continue running the show. They wanted to be the authority, and they weren't interested in submitting to anyone else even God's promised Messiah. 
right there in their midst, God in human flesh. And I'll tell you something, friends, just like the religious leaders of Israel, even today, there are a lot of people who have this exact same attitude when it comes to Jesus Christ. They aren't really interested in acknowledging Jesus as their Savior and Lord. They aren't interested in acknowledging the truth about who Jesus is. They just want to continue living life on their own terms. They want to be the boss. They want to be the authority. Some of you know my dad was a Christian apologist. He traveled all over the world defending the Christian faith like we do here at our apologetics conference every year. One of the places he spoke at shortly before he passed away six years ago was Duke University. He had been invited by Campus Crusade for Christ to hold a week-long series of outreach seminars there at Duke University. He spoke every night giving a defense of the Christian faith, why we believe the Bible, why we believe Jesus was the Son of God, why we believe in the resurrection. On the last night of his sessions there, after spending a week at Duke, a philosophy professor came up to my dad and said, Ron, could we get together for breakfast tomorrow before you leave town? So my dad met this guy at the local pancake house the next morning, and as they were sharing this atheistic philosophy professor from Duke University, he said to my dad, he said, Ron, I've been at your lectures all week long. And he said, I want you to know, I believe everything you've said is true this week. I believe you're absolutely right that there is a God. And I believe it's very likely, based on the evidence you shared, that Jesus truly was God in human flesh. He said, Ron, I can't give an explanation, another, another account of how these things could make sense, the resurrection, the miracles, the biblical testimony. But then this atheistic philosopher said to my dad, he said, but Ron, I'm still going to profess and teach my atheism. And my dad said to this man, he said, well, well, why? And he said, because it's morally comfortable. And he went on to share with my dad, he said, Ron, as long as I believe I'm nothing but an accident evolved out of slimy algae, as long as I believe I'm nothing but an animal, he says, I can go on and live my life any way I choose. I can drink, I can party, I can sleep around. But he said to my dad, as soon as I acknowledge the reality of a creator God, and as soon as I acknowledge the possibility that Jesus was God in human flesh, then I, by necessity, become accountable to that God. And he says, I don't want to be accountable to anybody. You know, friends, sadly, this atheistic professor recognized very clearly the implications of the authority of Jesus Christ. He recognized that to call Jesus Christ the Messiah, God in human flesh, the Savior of the world, would have changed everything in his life. It would have meant that he was now accountable to a greater authority than just himself. And what I find interesting is that this atheistic professor actually saw more clearly the implications of Jesus' lordship than even a lot of people who profess to call themselves Christian. See, there's a lot of people in our churches today who claim Jesus as their Lord, but in reality, they're not willing to submit to him as Lord. 
A lot of people today who claim Jesus as Lord will say to Jesus, you know, Jesus, you can have control over all of these areas of my life over here. But Jesus, when it comes to this, this one over here or this stuff, this stuff's mine. And they're not really willing to submit to Jesus as Lord overall. Maybe that's where some of you find yourselves today. And I just want to encourage you this morning, if that's where you find yourself not fully submitting to Jesus as Lord overall, that's an issue where you need to repent and let Jesus take his rightful place on the throne of your heart, Lord overall. Because the reality is, friends, there's no such thing as sitting on the fence when it comes to the Lordship of Jesus. You can't sit on that fence and claim, well, Jesus is Lord of this stuff in my life, but, but no, no, over here, that, that stuff's mine. I'm in control. That's not acknowledging Jesus as Lord, as the authority. And, and let me be clear on this. Jesus isn't expecting perfection out of you. Okay, to, to call Jesus your Lord and to follow him faithfully as your Lord doesn't mean you're not going to stumble and it doesn't mean you're not going to screw up and fall into sin at times. Jesus isn't asking for your perfection, but he does demand your affection. He wants to be number one in your heart. And when Jesus is number one in your heart, then naturally you will begin to give over all of those things that you were reserving for your lordship and you will submit them and lay them at the feet of Jesus and his lordship because he holds the affection of your heart. You see, the question we need to ask this morning, is Jesus really our king or is that just something we sing? Does Jesus hold the affection of your heart? That's a gut check question. That's one of those questions that we need to reflect on. And if necessary, we need to ask God to forgive us and say, Jesus, please, I want to put you back as number one over all areas of my life. The second question our passage forces us to wrestle with this morning, are we willing to live for the advancement of Christ's authority? Are we willing to live for the advancement of Christ's authority. So will we recognize Jesus as the authority over our lives, but then number two, will we live to see his authority advanced in our world? Let's look at what Jesus goes on to say in verses 9 through 16. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it out to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one they also beat and treated shamefully, and he sent away empty-handed. So he sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, may this never be. Now, as if Jesus hasn't turned up the heat enough on the religious leaders, 
Here in verses 9 through 16, he really takes them to task. Jesus tells this story of a landowner who sends his servants to the tenant farmers of his property to collect the payments that are owed to him. Now understand this, friends, no first century Jew would have needed to have this parable explained to them. In fact, our passage makes clear that everyone understood what Jesus was saying. The vineyard stood for God's people, Israel. The owner of the vineyard stood for God. The farmers for the spiritual leadership of Israel and the messengers for the Old Testament prophets. And Jesus' story here is a stinging rebuke against the spiritual leadership of Israel. You see, throughout Israel's history, they had failed in tending the vineyard. They had abused and rejected God's messengers, the prophets. And now, in just a few short days, they would even kill God's beloved son, the Messiah. What a tragedy. What blindness. And what a sad vision of the corrupt nature of the human heart. But understand this, friends. The primary point of this parable is not to simply reflect on the tragic history of Israel, but to highlight the fact that God was looking for faithful champions of his authority. The religious leaders of Israel had failed to champion God's will. They had failed to produce the spiritual fruit the Lord desired in his people. And so now, God was going to pass the mantle of spiritual authority on to others. He was going to give the vineyard to others. And we see this reality following Jesus' death and resurrection. God judges the nation of Israel. The Romans come in and totally destroy Jerusalem. And God judges the spiritual leadership of Israel. He removes the mantle of authority from them. And God then raised up prophets and apostles and the church and gave the mantle of spiritual authority over to them, to the church. That's what the whole book of Acts is all about. And so now God has called us the church, to be his champions in the world. We are his ambassadors. We now tend the vineyard and have the commission of living for the advancement of Christ's authority. But I want us to notice something crucial in this parable this morning. While this parable is a prophetic judgment against Israel's failed spiritual leadership, I want to make sure that we don't miss the fact that it is also a parable overflowing with the wondrous grace and love of God. Look at the God that we see depicted in this parable. Over and over again, sending servants to these tenant farmers who don't deserve any grace, and yet continually going to them in love, pursuing them, giving them a chance to do the right thing. The great reformer Martin Luther, reflecting on this passage, he once said, if I were God and the world had treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. That's what we deserve. That's what the world deserved 2,000 years ago. But God didn't kick us to pieces. 
Instead of kicking us to pieces, instead of turning his back on the world, God continued sending servant after servant, one prophet after another, seeking to win his people's love and devotion. And finally, in the ultimate act of grace, God sent his son who was willing to lay down his very life for us in our pride and our rebellion. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon commenting on this passage, he says, if you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. Friends, that's our God. Love and grace made manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. Why do we endeavor to champion the authority of Jesus faithfully as a church? It's not out of duty or obligation. It's because we know our master's heart. We know his love, a love that never gives up, a love that gives to the utmost for the sake of a relationship with us. But friends, it's also important to recognize this morning that God's love is also a righteous love. True love, perfect love can never cheer someone on in their rebellion. It's like a loving parent who's concerned with their teenager's rebellion. What's that loving parent going to do? Cheer them on in their rebellion? Oh, hey, go party. That's great. You know, go to your friend's house and drink. You know, sleep around. Good for you. Yeah. That's not love. A loving parent is going to sometimes need to chastise and discipline their wayward child. Why? Because that's perfect love. Perfect love is gracious and forgiving, but perfect love cannot ever cheer someone on in their rebellion. And in the same way, God in his perfect love will chastise his people when they rebel against his best for them. He's not going to cheer us on when we turn our backs on his perfect will for our lives. And so just as the religious leaders of Israel would ultimately lose the mantle of spiritual authority as God's champions, don't ever think for a minute that God wouldn't remove his blessing from us as a church if we too fail to honor him with the mantle he's entrusted us with. Remember, friends, the vineyard isn't ours. We're simply entrusted servants. And when we recognize this fact, this should lead us to some critical self-reflection as a church. Is Jesus really the Lord of this church? Who's the boss here? Who sets the agenda? Are we truly committed to proclaiming his rule and authority in our community? Do we risk God removing his blessing from us as he did with the spiritual leaders of Israel? These are important questions for us to consider. Will we keep Jesus number one as a church? Will we champion his authority? I pray we will. Question number three we're forced to wrestle with this morning in our passage. Are we standing on or stumbling over Christ's authority? Verses 17 through 19, Jesus goes on. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? 
The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Here in these verses that I shared earlier during communion, Jesus quotes a messianic prophecy. Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And once again here, friends, the point is the danger of rejecting Christ's authority. In rejecting Jesus, the spiritual leaders of Israel were missing out on the one thing they most needed to build up their nation and people, the cornerstone, the foundation stone. Friends, have you ever noticed this about a rock? I got got a rock here with me on stage. Have you ever noticed this about a rock or a stone? A stone can either be used as a tool or it can make you look like a fool. This same stone, which can be used for for building a fence, for for standing on to to get better height, for for breaking open a can or or crushing a varmint, right? This same stone that can be used as a tool can also make you look like a fool. If you drop it on your toe or you stumble over it, Jesus came as the precious cornerstone the foundation stone. And for some people who acknowledged him as Savior and Lord, they discovered the rock of life. And yet others stumbled over Jesus or were crushed in judgment because they refused to acknowledge him as Savior and Lord. Friends, to reject the authority of Jesus is the ultimate act of foolishness. But to embrace the authority of Jesus is to stand on the solid rock that leads to life and life to the full. So the question for all of us this morning is, who is Jesus for you? A stumbling stone or the cornerstone of your life? You see, when God says, repent of your sins and make me the Lord of your life, he's asking Will you submit to my authority? When God says, don't engage in sexual immorality, he's asking, will you submit to my authority? When God says, stay faithful to your spouse and fight for your marriage, he's asking, will you submit to my authority? When God says, give generously to the work of the Lord, he's asking, will you submit to my authority? When God says, forgive those who've hurt you and bless those who persecute you, he's asking, will you submit to my authority? And friends, God asks this because he's your creator and he knows what's best for you. But the choice is yours. The choice is yours. Will you submit to Christ's authority? Will you trust him as your Lord? Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. And even though it's a challenging passage that calls each of us to really a gut check moment where we ask, 
Jesus, am I really making you number one in my life today? Or are there areas where I haven't fully yielded my will to yours? Lord, even in these tough passages, we give thanks because we know you're our creator and you love us and you know what's best for us. And sometimes we need to check our hearts. And so, Lord, I confess my sin this morning. I confess that I haven't always put you number one in my life. And will you forgive me, Lord? And I ask that on behalf of our church as well. Jesus, if there are any areas that we haven't fully yielded to you this morning, God, let us be faithful champions of your authority. Let us be a church that puts you first in all things. And God, I pray that if there's anybody here this morning who hasn't embraced Jesus as the rock of life, the cornerstone, the foundation stone, I pray that even now, right here, that they might just say a quiet prayer and invite you to be the Lord of their lives, to forgive their sins, and to set you on the throne of your, their hearts. God, you are the foundation stone. Help us to stand on you faithfully, Lord. We thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like someone to pray for you following our service, our elders and Stephen ministers will be at the front of the sanctuary. And now I leave you with this benediction from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. God bless you, friends.